Welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast, where we bring Sunday home. Join us as we dive deeper into First Baptist's weekly sermons, discuss practical applications, and answer your questions. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast. I'm Jordan Upton, and with me as always is Pastor Jeff Reynolds. Jeff, how are you doing today? Doing great, Jordan. It's been a good weekend. It's a good start to the week. Summer has arrived, uh, and with it have come summer temperatures. And uh, uh, it's kind of interesting. The kids are out of school, and life is very, very busy. All of a sudden, my son is playing uh, both football and basketball for South Warren High School, and so both of those are going on right now. They, they do summer basketball, and then my daughter is uh, is involved in volleyball, and so it's just... It is, uh, it's a very busy time, but it's a good time. So how about you guys? How are you getting along? How's Taylor doing? Oh, we're great. Taylor is doing well. Uh, we are so close to having baby number two. Uh, it's right around the corner, but she's well, baby's well. Um, our little two-year-old Isaac is doing well too. That's he, awesome. Uh, he's, we figured out that he likes, uh, playing with the sprinkler more than being in the pool. Well, there you go. Yeah. We, you know, we, you know, fill up the little inflatable pool and he, you know, he'd be in it for a minute, but then he went over and got the sprinkler and he started watering the plants with it. So. Oh, well, look at there. That's perfect. Yeah, so you yeah. got, you got a little help already. Yeah, so chores, that's man. good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yep. that's great. Now this week we also got TJ Renfro on as our new minister of youth. Yes, we did. And that was a big praise. So uh, our church met in a special called business conference last Wednesday and officially voted on TJ. He was voted in unanimously. So now he and Lauren Parrish uh, have a distinction that none of the rest of us have. (laughs) I was not a unanimous selection of our church, nor was Ricky Clark or David Tooley, or I don't know about Vicki Donaldson. She's been around for uh, more than two decades, so I don't have the records of her vote. But um, but yeah, very excited. TJ is is um, just a fine young man, and he is he is on the verge of marriage. He's going to get married later this summer uh, to his wonderful fiance Anna, and they are just jumping in with both feet. So very excited uh, to have them on board. Yeah, they're great. I am just a life step ahead of them in that I'm already married and have a child already. So I've been giving them unsolicited parenting and marriage advice. So that's the best kind of advice, unsolicited advice. Yeah. No, but but you know, honestly though, I mean, I'll tell you, it, it wasn't long ago where my wife and I were just getting married and then looking at the potential of starting a family and all those sorts of things. And there's there's so much you don't realize that you don't know yeah. until you're faced with it. And now all of a sudden Wow, how does I thought there was a moment where you just turned a certain age and all the dad wisdom that you needed just downloaded to you. Mm. And that doesn't happen. No. You you have to acquire it over time and and I was always thankful and I'm still thankful. Uh, because here's the deal, each stage of life is different. So now we have a a rising sophomore and a rising sixth grader. And I'm still listening to people who are a few steps ahead of me saying, "What do we do?" now. And so I'm very thankful for that. And I bet they are too. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. This weekend I heard about how wisdom is not attained by age, like you're saying here. Mm -hmm. Like wisdom is attained by learning from God. Yeah. You know, you have to read the Bible. You have to be around wiser than you people to get wisdom. It doesn't just come by growing older. Uh, That's exactly right. And, 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 and I'll tell you, um, 
there was an assumption that I had that 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 it was just a, a natural byproduct of growing older, and it's truly not. There there are some people who are aged who make very unwise decisions, and so um, listeners never stop growing, never stop seeking wise counsel from those whose lives you want to emulate because you can always learn something. You can always um, become more Christ-like and uh, find yourself pursuing God's will better than, um, than sometimes you might otherwise be inclined to do. So that's a great reminder. Amen. And speaking of seeking wisdom and becoming more Christ-like, that'll take us into our passage for today, which is Matthew 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. So we won't read all of Matthew 5 through 7. If you want to grab a Bible and have it open or read it ahead of time, that'll help you with this podcast today. But here's the first question. So Jeff, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lists several biblical commandments. Do not murder. Do not, do not commit adultery. But then he gives several other erroneous teachings of his day. And he says to his disciples that they should meet a higher standard than what's been presented to them. So is Jesus making the Torah harder? The short answer to that question is yes. To sinful human beings, I think so. Um when you go back to the context into which Jesus was speaking this, and, and you think about all the sects within Judaism, S-E-C-T-S, um, there were, uh, just like there are many Christian denominations, there were many groups within Judaism who felt like they had it right, like they understood um, Torah, they understood the writings, they understood the prophets, and they understood how to live out their faith in a way that was superior to the other groups within Judaism. So we think often about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. At this time, the Sadducees were in charge of the Sanhedrin, uh, but the Pharisees were kind of the the lawyers who would take God's law and appropriate it in people's lives and, and seek to apply the 613 commandments to specific situations that might not be as overt uh, in their application as one might uh, desire. And so what you had was you had the traditions that were being handed out as to how the law was to be applied. Um, But you didn't just have the Sadducees and you didn't just have the Pharisees. You also had the Essenes who had separated themselves out. You know, I've been to Qumran. um, And one of the things that was very important to the Essenes was ritual baths. So there are mikvahs everywhere. Um, They were also really good at routing water, uh, which was very important in the Judean wilderness, uh, particularly next to the Dead Sea, which they were next to the Dead Sea. But the Dead Sea is not a source of refreshment. uh, You can die very quickly by drinking Dead Sea water. So (laughs) Um, but you had the zealots who uh, were still around as you think about the Maccabees and the, all the things that happened in the intertestamental period. And everybody kind of had their um, their stamp on this is how to do it right. In much the same way that the Baptists and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Catholics and you know all the different denominations that we have today kind of feel like, yeah, we understand God's worldview, we understand God's word, and we understand what it means to live out the faith better than the other groups. And what Jesus is doing is he is he is shifting all of our paradigms to say, let me tell you what citizenship in the kingdom of God looks like. And he does. He says, you have heard it was said, 
do not murder. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. Well, what is he doing? Well, first of all, he's asserting an authority that is remarkable. Um, Jesus is the word made flesh to dwell among us. He is almighty God, co-eternal with the Father. And so there was never a time when Jesus was not, never a time when the Father was not, never a time when the Spirit was not. Um, and Jesus is the author of Torah. <laughs> he is the author of the writings. He is the author of the prophets. Um, and so he is, he is here applying it, but he's doing it in a way that goes to the heart. So I mentioned in the sermon, you know, I might seek to be self-righteous in the fact that I haven't murdered anyone. Uh, because I haven't, <laughs> you know, don't intend to, I, you know, um, but when Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, do not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I'm reading from Matthew 5, beginning with verse 21, and this is verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest you uh, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, what does Jesus do here? He goes from the outworking of the commandment to the heart behind the commandment. And so, yeah, it's easy to say, I've not murdered anyone, it is infinitely harder to say, I haven't been unjustly angry with someone. And so Jesus goes to the heart. Same thing with committing adultery. You know, it's pretty easy to say, I haven't cheated on my wife. But when Jesus takes us to the to the position of lust is adultery in your heart, well, now all of a sudden, you know, I don't ever ask people to raise their hands and, and admit to this, but now all of a sudden... Again, God is looking at the heart. And so what is Jesus doing? He's communicating that the heart of the matter is, is truly where we need to be transformed. We don't need to be transformed from the outside in. We need to be transformed from the inside out. And in order to do that, we have to surrender to Jesus's lordship, to the grace of God in our lives, which is the only way we can come to a place where, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can live out what Jesus is here teaching. So to answer your question, yes, he makes it harder, but I think intentionally so to show us our need for grace. Yeah, so you brought up the Pharisees. So they're obviously major characters within the gospel stories and throughout Acts as well. Um, and even within the Pharisees, I mean, you were listing off all the different sects of Judaism. Uh, even within the Pharisees, there's multiple sects going on with That's right. uh, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai, uh, the, the more strict house and the more uh, relaxed house. Um, and you can see that even play out with some of the different Pharisees that interact with Jesus. Like, you know, are they trying to be more strict or are they trying to be more loose? Yeah. Um, so the Pharisees, very important. And here in Matthew 20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and how are we supposed to exceed it? Man, that's a great question, and to answer it, I would just simply point us to Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus pronounces seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And listen, 
uh, Jesus is, is pretty remarkably straightforward. He says in chapter 23, verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. And so let's look at the woes that he says. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is verse 13. Hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And he goes through and 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 lists a lot of the things that the Pharisees do. So, for example, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He talks about how they clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but on the inside that it's filthy. He calls them whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. I mean, it's it's the same idea that they look good on the outside. And so they would, they would walk around in religious garb. And Jesus says um, in Matthew chapter 6, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, um, beware of those who like to make a show of their religion. I'm paraphrasing. Um, that's not how you're supposed to do it. It's, it's not supposed to be um, lived out so that others will say, wow, you're really holy. So that's where Jesus is really coming against the Pharisees. And, and any, any movies, uh, Jesus movies you watch or Jesus shows you watch, you can pick out the Pharisees easily. Uh, they're walking around with these huge phylacteries on their heads, and they're, 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 um, they just have an air about them, an air of superiority. And, and I think it's instructive to us that we need to watch out for that in ourselves. Um, we can have that denominationally. You know, I was at Vespers talking to Vespers, and I said, what does this mean for us? I said, well, you know, if we have an air of superiority because we're Baptists, and not only are we Baptists, but we're a part of not the second Baptist church, the third Baptist church. No, no, no. We are the first Baptist church of Bowling Green, and Dr. So-and-so is our pastor, you know. We can we can we can have that same sort of air of superiority, and that doesn't have a place in the kingdom of God. the The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come to Jesus humbly, and we all come to Him desperately in need of His grace. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace. And so, I think it's just a reminder that we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but rather to look at ourselves with sober judgment. Um, you know, the, the, probably the, the contemporarily most quoted passage within the Sermon on the Mount probably used to be the golden rule, but now I'd say it's judge not that you not be judged. And, and unfortunately, people want to hijack that. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying, Look, you've got your own issues. Get the plank out of your own eye. Uh, in the language of Matthew 23, check out the camel you are swallowing before you start going after the gnat somebody else is swallowing. Get the plank out of your eye before you start going after the speck of dust in your brother's eye. It's not that, uh, it's not that there's not a, a place for admonition and encouragement and, and helping people flee sin and pursue righteousness, but it's that... Look, we all have to look introspectively as well.
And we have to uh, pray the prayer of the psalmist, which says, look deep within me and see if there be any offensive way in me. Uh, Show it to me that I might repent. And uh, that's an important thing. So the Pharisees weren't real good at that. They were awfully proud of themselves. And so you saw Jesus throughout the course of his ministry interacting with them in ways that were um, probably harsher than any other people uh, that he would interact with um, because they thought they had it all figured out. And unfortunately, they did not. I always like to circle back to a, a passage from Jewish literature. This is in particular from Avot de Rabbi Natan, where it's from you know the descendants of the Pharisees, the theological descendants of the Pharisees, yeah. the rabbinic Judaism, and it's just lambasting the Pharisees as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so it says, there are seven types of false Pharisees, the Shechemite Pharisee, the Nakfite Pharisee, the Miskarite Pharisee, the Maccabite Pharisee, and those are all just given references to particular stories or places that have certain associations that are not good, um, but then some more that we would recognize. The Pharisee for the sake of profession, so the one who wants glory. Yeah. The Pharisee who was obligated by marriage, so he married into a family, he's got to do whatever he's got to do to yeah. keep up appearances. Pharisee driven by lust, that is, whatever he's doing, he's trying to hide something or whatever. And the Pharisee driven by fear, obviously we're not supposed to be living in fear or acting in fear uh, only. We're supposed to fear God, but fear God and love God. And we're not supposed to be just walking around fearing hell exclusively. We're supposed to be loving God and loving people. Yeah, well, and and, and, in the epistle, uh, 1 John, you know, Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. So if you are living in constant fear of punishment, then then you have not embraced the perfect love of God that, that casts out that fear by giving you the assurance of everlasting life in Jesus Christ. So I do want to ask you about something that you quoted in there. So Jesus says, the Pharisees have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what what is he getting at here? What what are justice and mercy and faithfulness if they're not being done by the Pharisees? Well, so I think there's two parts to that. Number one, they're proud of themselves for their tithe. <laughs> so they're they're tithing, uh, and they are tithing not only of their money, but they're tithing of their crops and all these sorts of things. And so they're very, very proud of that. Um, Jesus is saying not that you shouldn't tithe but that there are other matters that are weightier than the fact that you've given a gift. That's great. And and quite frankly, I think of a country song, Kenny Chesney, talking about giving money to the preacher. Here's a 10 to help you remember the next time you got the good Lord's ear. You know, I mean, get me out of this sin that I've done. I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight, that sort of a thing. And, And it's the same sort of deal. You think about the parable that Jesus taught of the Pharisee and the tax collector that the Pharisee would say, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. I tithe, I attend worship, I do, you know, all the things. And then the tax collector at a distance wouldn't even look up to heaven, but rather beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asked the question, which one went down justified? Well, it was the tax collector because he didn't come to God to brag about all the great things he does. He comes to God seeking mercy uh, as a sinner in need of God's grace. And so I think that as we live out our faith, and and I think it's very possible in 2023 for people to say, you know, I've given a good gift to the church. It doesn't matter how I treat people. Well, no, that's not it. Does that 
Does that mean we shouldn't give good gifts to the church as we worship God by our giving? No. Um, but if I'm giving, let's say I'm giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to the church, but I'm treating the waiter or waitress at the restaurant like garbage, like they're there to serve me, then that's a major heart issue. And God is addressing the heart again. Um, yes, it's wonderful that we give. And yes, it's wonderful that we prioritize our resources. But that's just one aspect of the faith. And if my call from God is to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself, part of loving the Lord my God with all of my strength is with the resources that he has entrusted to my care. So giving is a very important part of that. But if I'm just doing that to the neglect of loving God by the way that I treat others and loving my neighbor as myself, then I've missed the mark. And so more, more work is needed within me. And I say that recognizing that more work is needed in all of us all the time. Mm-hmm. But Jesus has, is, I think, clarifying this for us so that we can understand, again, it's a matter of the heart. And, and what God is after is not just our behavior. He didn't just come to make us good little boys and good little girls. He came to make us Christ-like individuals, Christ-like boys and girls, men and women, who honor God with every aspect of our lives. And that can only happen as we continually surrender to God through Jesus Christ our Lord and are transformed into His likeness. So I have a friend named Darren Huckey who put it in a way that I think is really helpful to me to understand this sermon. So he said, we need to go past being a Zadik to becoming a Hasid. So a Zadik is the Hebrew term for a righteous person. So it's someone who meets their obligation within the law. But then a Hasid is someone who goes past it because they love God and they love their neighbor. So here in this given situation, we're talking about Pharisees who are tithing and they want to make a big show of it, make sure everyone knows that they're tithing, they're wearing their phylacteries, they have their tassels on. But it's really for show, and what they're doing isn't going above what they're supposed to do. Um, whereas, like in the parable about the tax collector, or even with Jesus himself, the point is that you need to be doing what you should be doing and doing it with all your heart. You're supposed to be uh, tithing, but your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Um, it, like Jesus healing people. He was telling people, don't tell people that I'm the Messiah, and don't tell people I'm healing you. He was trying to do righteousness where people wouldn't see it. Um, and that's really the heart that he's trying to instill within us, uh, according to what Darren is saying. It's saying, don't just do what's required of you, because that's never what God has said. He's never said, get saved, period. It, it's not about that. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor. And if you're loving God and you're loving your neighbor, then you're going to be much closer to the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. So that'll take us into today's listener question. Listeners, if you have a question, go to the link in the show notes or comment on the post below. Jeff, why is the Sermon on the Mount considered the greatest sermon of all time? Well, I think that's a great question. Many people have gleaned from the Sermon on the Mount, Christian and non-Christian alike, um, and I think that it's easy to kind of to kind of come in here. I mean, for example, we've got the golden rule right there in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Well, I was taught the golden rule from the earliest stage I can remember, um, but that was less about this is the teaching of Jesus and more about this is how to be a good boy. This is how to, to live in South Central Kentucky in the, in the 
if you call us the southeastern United States, um, I was actually shocked the first time. I was like, whoa, Jesus said that? That's crazy. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount um, is, the, is the longest recorded exposition of Jesus that we have in the Bible. So covers three chapters in Matthew's Gospel. David Platt said this in his Christ-centered exposition commentary of Matthew. So no matter how many times we've heard the Sermon on the Mount, there is still more to be gained from this most majestic sermon from the greatest preacher who ever lived. Here in Matthew 5 through 7, just 111 verses, is the fullest exposition of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. John Stott referred to it as, quote, the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and do, end quote. Uh, Platt says, to put it differently, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us what it means to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. And then another, another pastor, Kent Hughes, said that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is so famous and powerful that we can hardly overstate its influence. St. Augustine, for example, described it as, quote, a perfect standard of the Christian life, end quote. He said the great preacher-poet John Donne spoke of it in the most ornate terms, and this is quoting Donne, As nature hath given us certain elements, and all our bodies are composed of them, and art hath given us a certain alphabet of letters, and all words are composed of them, so our blessed Savior, in these three chapters of this gospel, hath given us a sermon of texts, of which all our sermons may be composed. All of the articles of our religion, all of the canons of our church, all of the injunctions of our princes, all of the homilies of our fathers— all of the body of divinity is in these three chapters in this one sermon on the mount. Hughes continues by saying that Dietrich Bonhoeffer based his classic The Cost of Discipleship upon its exposition. And he says the influence of the Sermon on the Mount is truly past reckoning. And, and so there's just some historical context within recent history, comparatively speaking, when you look to the Sermon on the Mount, what you see is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And as we've discussed, it starts with the recognition that we are in need of God's grace. And it is only by submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, by, by surrendering to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and, and not only confessing that Jesus is Lord, but trusting and following Jesus as Lord, uh, and being filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we are able to live out this life. And uh, as we do, we glorify God. We, we do good deeds that glorify our Father in heaven, that, that welcome others to come unto him. And we truly live out the faith once for all delivered to the saints in a way that, again, glorifies God and blesses the world around us. That's so beautiful. May it be that we internalize these words from the Sermon on the Mount and become more and more like Christ the more and more we study his words. Jeff, can you pray us out for today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you call us to that which is beyond us. In Luke 6.46, Jesus, you said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Well, may that not be us. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we continue to surrender to your Lordship in our lives, may we live out the faith once for all delivered to the saints in a way that glorifies you and blesses the world around us. Help us not be mere professors of faith, but help us to live out our faith because we are possessors of faith that are empowered by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, may our faith help shape the faith of others by your grace. 
We love you, Lord. We pray these things trusting you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to our channel. To submit a question about Sunday's sermon, the Bible, or walking with Jesus, click the link in the episode description. Our hosts today are Pastor Jeff Reynolds and myself, Jordan Upton. Our engineer is Elliot Beckley, and our editor is Chad Walden.